Golazo. So this will be our last afternoon for the time being to begin to explore, try to master this initial phase of mindfulness of breathing. And it's good to memorize each of the balancing acts, or the, you know, just that, the balancing act for each of these phases of the mindfulness of breathing. The first one being ever so important, and it's simple. It really is simple. Doesn't mean it's easy. So time and again, like Dzogchen, when you're actually doing the practice, quite simple. Whether it's easy or not, that's another question. You know? And so here it is, the balancing act, just a little bit of reiteration, reminder. It's really learning how to unwind, to relax, to set your body at ease, your mind at ease, to so relax that your breath becomes silky, just smooth, flowing, effortless, and your mind really at ease, carefree, for the time being, really carefree, with no anxiety about how the future will turn out this way or that way, how your practice will turn out this way or that way, not lingering, holding on to the past uh, but just allowing yourself this freedom. Uh, where we're going this afternoon for the discursive meditation after this shamatha session, we'll be focusing on this one theme, the first of the four thoughts that turn the mind or bring about this inner revolution. And it's all about a life of leisure and opportunity. Okay? And that may last for decades. Once you achieve a life of leisure and opportunity, if you live a nice long life, you may have that for some decades. And to recognize it while you have it, well, here's a microcosm of that. A microcosm of that. And that is for these 24 minutes, you really have no other demands on your time at all. Nobody needs you for anything. For 24 minutes, you really are free, right? But it's not enough to be free. You need to know, recognize that you're free. And not enough to have the leisure to recognize you have the leisure. To take advantage of it and not keep, your, give, keep on giving yourself work when you don't need to give yourself any work. So leisure, leisure, of just having some free time. Say, wow, no obligations, no email, no calls, no children calling on me, no spouse, nobody. Leisure, wow. Like this is a piece of clay that's just waiting to be shaped. An opportunity. So it's leisure. Then what do you do with that? Do you fall asleep? Do you get bored? Do you doze off? People do all kinds of things with leisure. It's called killing time, right? But with the leisure, then you have opportunity. What's your opportunity? Well, in this context, the opportunity is having the full opportunity, really knowing how to fill that leisure with the most meaningful endeavors you can possibly adopt. So, practicing Dhamma. That which has meaning already before you know the outcome. That's really the something quite unique. Really, I think it is unique of Dharma. So many other things, whenever we're pursuing some hedonic well-being, starting a business, a relationship, anything out there, we're kind of wondering, how's it going to turn out? Was this a good decision or not? And we're kind of left in limbo. You, know? you even go to a restaurant you've never been to. It looks really good. I've heard really good things about it. Shall we try it out? Maybe it's going to be bomb. Maybe you come home with you know, bad stomach. Or maybe you'll choose a meal you just didn't like. You could have stayed home and had a meal you didn't like. Probably spent less on it, too. You don't know how it's going to turn out. You know? And so you go hoping there, well, I hope it turns out well. I hope it turns out well. Dharma practice can be approached in that way, and it's a misguided way to approach Dharma. You're adopting it as if you were pursuing some hedonic pleasure. 
wow, I'm going to practice shamatha. How's it going to turn out? I hope it turns out well. Maybe it won't. Maybe I'm good at it. Maybe I'll suck. Maybe I'll progress quickly. Maybe not. Gee, I don't know. Then basically just one more hedonic pursuit. You know, how's it going to turn out? Grasping, grasping, grasping. Like little Pac-Man. You remember Pac-Man decades ago? <coughs> Approaching Shamata like little Pac-Man. You know? If you don't already know in the moment that the practice is meaningful, you're doing it wrong. You, know? you should actually know right in the moment. With your motivation. This is why we, we, we launch with the most meaningful motivation we can. And if you know that's there, if you're confident, I've got my motivation is sound. It's a good motivation. You know, if you know that, and you can know that. And then you sit down and you're following your breath for two seconds. Two seconds well spent. Maybe they'll be, they'll be your last two seconds, you know. I'm 63. Ever heard of 63-year-olds dying? It's not too young, is it? I mean, it's, it's okay to die now? Like 63 is... You know, like you had some decades, you know, could have been longer, but could have been short. Stroke, heart attack, you hear it all the time. 63-year-old, boop, out like a light, you know. So how do I know whether I'm going to finish this little Dharma talk or not? I don't. But right now I'm very content. If this is my last moment, this is a good way to check out. Maybe not for you, but really good for me. <laughs> you know? So there it is in Dharma. If you're looking for instant gratification, Dharma's the ticket. That right there in the moment, if you have that confidence, this is time well spent. This is a straight path of sanity, actualizing sanity right here and now, greater sanity, greater clarity, greater stillness, greater coherence, greater unity, greater wholeness. The heart is open, the motivation is sound, it's benevolent. This is already good. And if it's two seconds, that's fine. If it's 24 minutes, all the better. You know? So having that confidence, that really calms the mind down. It really does. So there's no anxiety. And, there's, and within Dharma, as in relationships, getting a job, getting an education, and so forth, we can't control the outcome. We just can't control the outcome. You know? In terms of how is this going to turn out? How quickly will I progress? What obstacles may or may not arise? Can't control that. So why be anxious about things we can't control at all? You know, it's a waste of time. You know, find a hammer and start hitting yourself on the head. Why not? And so those things we can't control. But right in the moment when we're practicing, right like right now. Well, that was a good two seconds. You know, that's practice. And there's no anxiety there at all. I know that was the right direction. Okay? So the balance, chill, relax. Release your anxieties, your hopes, and your fears. Establish a sound motivation. And practice as well as you can. And as you're relaxing more and more deeply, of course, if we are already expert at this, of learning how to relax more and more deeply without losing clarity, if we're already expert, then I wouldn't teach it. I don't teach you how to chew your food. I assume you already know how to do that very well. Right? But learning how to relax more and more deeply without following the habitual pattern of relaxing more and more deeply and getting more and more groggy and then falling asleep, that we know how to do. You don't need any lessons from me. But learning how to relax more and more deeply, getting mellow, like, like, like a bar of butter, just melting, and so it just goes into total liquid, and that kind of melting quality, and maintaining the clarity you have right now, that's a skill. That doesn't come overnight. That's a skill. 
It's a really, really useful one for anything. To be so soft, so relaxed, and yet clear. Right? That's a skill to be cultivated. So that's the balance. And so if you find as you're doing this practice that there's still some tightness, a bit of being wound up, a bit tense, and so forth, then just keep on breathing out. Every out-breath like a sigh of relief. Releasing, releasing, and happily releasing. Not cracking the whip, releasing. Like, relax now, come on you, damn you, relax now. You know, that doesn't work too well. You know, just the real releasing. And learning how to release and giving yourself a break. You know? Some of us, like myself, know how to be very harsh on, my, on ourselves. We're good at it. Practice makes perfect. We learn how to beat ourselves up. You know? But to learn how to really release and happily release and see one thought after another after another coming up, really it's almost like they're coming to, would you like to dance? Would you like to dance? Would you like to dance? Shall we take a few spins around the, the dance floor? And it's just learning how to smile at them and, you know, without even talking. Just Imagine there's a woman and a man comes up and she, and she says, would you like to dance? And she just smiles at him. He's going to walk away. He'll try to find somebody else to dance with. Right? He's not going to linger there forever if you just smile and don't respond at all. So be like a very, very contented lady on the dance floor, quite happy to watch other people dance, but not accepting anybody's invitation. Right? So as one thought comes up after another, beckoning you, shall I take you for a ride? Shall we go up for a spin? You know, just smile. So that's a way to overcome the perpetual, the obsessive, the compulsive rumination, you know, the flow of thought. So there's one, there's one. So how do we handle that? Well, that's how. Smile and let them go, right? And the other one, of course, it's very, very easy as we get mellower and mellower to start losing that edge, getting a bit drifty, a bit vague, a bit nebulous, spacing out. Very easy to do. We have a lot of practice at that. It's called taking a nap. Right? How do we overcome that one? Well, maybe take a glass of cold water just before your meditation. You might keep the eyes a bit open so more light comes in. You might want to adopt a posture, more of a posture of vigilance if you find the supine position really kind of pushes you into the edge of, you know, over the edge into dullness and sleepiness. Then go ahead and sit, sit upright in a posture of vigilance. Or if you're not so comfortable sitting upright in the cross-legged, sit comfortably in a chair. But one way or another, find a way to bring freshness to it, the eyes light, maybe a more brightly, maybe turn the, on, the, on the, the, uh, the, the lights in your room, uh, dressing very lightly, turning on the air conditioning so you don't feel muggy, you don't feel humid and kind of heavy of the, the moisture in the atmosphere, all of that would be good. Okay. Final point, because I'd like to give very little instructions, so you can really not have to multitask, going back and forth between the meditation and listening to me. So I'll give a bit of instruction. But I'm front-loading this, as I often do after I've taught something for a few times. And that is a real key here. I've often mentioned the key to this is the out-breath. You remember? And within the out-breath, the key of the key is the very end of the out-breath. Don't talk through it. Don't ruminate through it. It will ruin it. Okay? It's just like listening to a beautiful piece of music and then it comes to the final bars and you already start talking. You say, oh, just when it's coming to this beautiful end and you had to start talking. You know? It ruins it. So likewise, when the breath is just coming to the very end, be very quiet. Make a point. Being very quiet. Just observe the sensations as the breath flows out, out to the last drop, to the last gust of 
of breath coming out, flowing out. Be very quiet. They're very much in the present, very relaxed, very calm, releasing all the way to the end with a quiet mind. And then don't wait. Waiting implies expectation that's unfulfilled. Just be present. With no grasping, no hope, no expectation, no effort. Just release. And then sooner or later, all in good time, exactly when your body needs the breath, that's when the body's going to breathe in. And you would actually have to give effort for that not to happen, which, of course, you don't give. So just allow that breath to come in like as if you're holding your hand open and somebody just places something in your hand. You don't have to reach out. You don't have to grab it. You don't have to pull it, hope for it, expect it. So have your hand out, and then the gift comes to hand. So there you are. You breathe out. And when the time is ripe, you're going to get a gift, and it's called the breath of life. One more breath will be freely given. And you don't take it. You just accept it. And maybe a little gift, short breath, maybe a long gift. Whatever it is, it's a gift. And you freely receive it until it's all given, and then you give it away. Okay? So I've just front-loaded the session. Now I get to give fewer words during the session. Please find a comfortable position. Letting your awareness come and settle in the space of your body, descending right to the ground, to the earth element. Let your awareness rise up and fill the entire space of your body, setting your body at ease, all the muscles of your face at ease. Rest your body in stillness and adopt a posture of vigilance.
Then as you allow your respiration to come and settle in its own natural rhythm, completely surrender all control over your respiration, let it flow of its own accord, effortlessly and without constraint. Set your mind at ease, bringing forth these qualities of relaxation, the stillness of your awareness, still because it's free of grasping. And allow the natural luminosity of your awareness to manifest, illuminating the space of the body, attending selectively to the sensations of the in and out breath as they manifest throughout the body. Relaxing deeply with every out-breath and gently arousing and focusing your attention with each in-breath. The untrained mind is like a wild horse that is accustomed to roaming freely wherever it will. And now we gently seek to tame that wild horse by keeping the attention, retaining the attention within the pasture, within the field, within the enclosure of the space of your body, 
So wherever your attention moves within the body, notice sensations here, sensations there of the breath. Let your attention roll freely within the body. But as soon as it leaps the fence and goes out to some other sensory domain or is carried away by some rumination, that your first response, as soon as you notice this, let it be to relax, loosen up, Release whatever captivated your attention and return back to the field of your body. Let's continue practicing now in silence.
So I anticipate that over these eight weeks that we spend together, you will find through your own experience this synergistic or reciprocal relationship between your shamatha practice or practices on the one hand and then your discursive meditations, really following, entering into the meditations suggested by Atisha, written down by Yeshi Chekala. Uh, how the discursive meditations really enliven, inspire, give direction and depth to your shamatha practice, really make the shamatha practice just immeasurably more meaningful. Because you see then, from your own experience, it's really leading on to a path. At the same time, these qualities of relaxation, stability and vividness of shamatha just bring so much more strength, vitality, clarity, juice to your discursive meditations. So that's where we're going to go right now. Uh, the time is passing. So we'll go just to the first line, and that is, in this root text itself, first train in the preliminaries. So that does lend itself to multiple interpretations, but the standard interpretation of this is it's referring specifically to four, and we'll cover just one today. <coughs> and I will say this, that the, each of these so-called preliminaries, but let's... Was it referring to these lotok namji, these four ways of radically turning about, turning in a diametrically opposed direction, your perspective on various aspects of your own existence, your place in the universe? Uh, frankly, each one of these will have a far greater impact on your life than sh having a revolution from your own perspective of thinking that the earth goes around the sun rather than vice versa. That was a revolution. But how much that really has impact on our daily lives? I think a bit variable. But this first one, this first one, the meditation out of the four, we'll just cover one today, the meditation on the Danjur Gamilu Rinpoche, it's called in Tibetan. This precious human life, this precious human body, this basis of existence in this form, this species of leisure and opportunity. Reflecting upon that, recognizing it, saturating your mind in it, and shifting your very perspective on what it means for you to have the life that you have right now. That's really core. When you get it, when you really get it, it really is literally a revolution. Now one can say, well, wait a minute, but this is just adopting a certain Buddhist doctrine. Why is that a, re a, a revolution? It's simply, you know, learning some statement from Buddhism. But if we, I, I would assume all of us here believe the earth goes around the sun and not vice versa. We, I imagine you probably believe, as I do, there's a tremendous amount of truth in the Darwinian theory of evolution. Whether or not it's a complete picture, that's another question. I don't take it as a religion. I, I take it as a superb scientific theory, but I do not regard it as being all-encompassing and explaining every aspect of human existence. That's just going way beyond science, and I don't buy it. And then, because I've studied physics, I do have some appreciation of the, the significance of that second great revolution, which is still not complete in quantum mechanics and, and relativity theory. But if you should ask me, even with having some scientific background, if you are a real skeptic, and you say, okay, Alan, you say you believe the earth goes around the sun and not vice versa. Show me. I'd have a hard time. I, th I think, you know, Eric could probably do it. He's an astrophysicist, but I don't think I could do it. I don't doubt it, but I'm relying upon people who I think have really deserved my faith, my confidence that people have done this. They've done sufficient training. They've learned it. I have confidence in them. So their knowledge becomes my knowledge. Not out of blind faith, 
but because I know the kind of training they've been through and I'm relying upon them, so that shifts my axis too. Likewise, Darwin, I've not done that research, neither of Darwin or uh, Alfred Russell Wallace. I really couldn't demonstrate it. I couldn't persuade you if you completely doubted the Darwinian theory, but I have confidence there are so many biologists that have looked into this with great depth, great sophistication. They have the training. There's a lot of consensus there. That's my revolution too. You know, I do believe it. And likewise, to some extent, quantum mechanics and relativity. I've done some of the math. The Schrodinger wave equation, Einstein's equation for rel special relativity, not that difficult. And so I think I, it's kind of persuasive. But what, could I persuade you? I doubt it, right? And so it's not that different here. And that is this prescient human rebirth. Everything of these four, each one of these four thoughts that radically turns your whole, turns you around, you know radically shifts your perspective on existence. Each one of these four is really rooted in some of the direct insights that the Buddha had himself, which he claimed to have, and that is, and it starts with the first great revelation, the first great insight, empirical discovery based upon extremely rigorous investigation and training of the mind, and on the first watch of the night, as he reported in his own words, I discovered, he said, through direct knowledge, that was his word, I discovered through my own direct knowledge my past lives, going into the distance of time, the vastness of time. And I recognized, he said, the specific circumstances of this life and the one preceding it and preceding it and preceding it, this I saw in the first watch of the night with direct knowledge. Now, we don't have to believe that with blind faith, but what's not unique here, but is certainly unusual and is not like the Western Abrahamic religions, and I have a lot of respect for them. I think they've benefited actually billions of people over many, many centuries. But there's something different here. Moses, Abraham, they didn't give you a, a guidebook on how to become a prophet. You know, how to become Moses in three easy lessons. How to become an Abraham. How to be, any of the, New of the Old Testament or the Jewish Bible. They didn't tell you how to become prophets because they didn't know how to become prophets themselves. It happened to them, right? The same thing for Muhammad. It wasn't something he trained to become, and he didn't train other people to become. And likewise, Jesus, the one son of God, I think there are very few Christians that believe that he set forth teachings about how you too can become the son or daughter of God. Clearly, that's open to interpretation, but not many Christians would say, oh yeah, he taught you how to achieve the same state that he achieved. So this is not, it's not part of our classic Western religions, but when it comes to the Buddha, he tells you exactly how he did it. He doesn't hold his cards close to his chest. He, he lays them out as he did when he first turned the wheel of Dharma in Sadhanat. And right there among the five disciples, one right there gained realization of Nirvana. Pretty cool. They heard the teaching and gained realization. And the Buddha, I mean, I find it remarkable. I find it quite astonishing. As soon as one of the disciples, right there as he was, as, after giving the teachings and the Four Noble Truths, one of them gained direct realization of Nirvana. And the Buddha immediately saw it. And he rejoiced. He said, he's seen, he's seen. And it was in that moment, I find this so interesting from a scientific perspective, that in that moment when somebody else had gained realization, that's when the wheel of Dharma first turned. Not when he began speaking. The wheel of Dharma was turned after he had been, begun speaking and somebody gained realization. And then the wheel of Dharma kept on turning and turning and turning. In a similar fashion, Let's say Darwin. He discovered the theory of evolution 20 years before he published. But that doesn't count. He didn't publish. He didn't make it public. He didn't, 
convey that information, that discovery, that insight to somebody else. Wallace could have beat him to the punch, but he sent his own research to Darwin, and the Darwin said, ooh, I better get on my horse and get going here. I don't want to let this guy get all the credit, because after all, I came up with it 20 years ago. It's not knowledge until it's public. Scientific knowledge is not knowledge until it's public. It has to be transferred. It has to be published in a peer-reviewed journal. That's when the discovery takes place, and not when you're sitting quietly and you have a bright idea. So the point here is that the Buddha made this extraordinary claim that he saw with direct knowledge, consciousness doesn't begin with conception, it doesn't begin with the formation of the brain or the sufficient complexity of neurons. It doesn't begin. It just reaches back into time with no identifiable beginning. And it doesn't disappear at death. It doesn't just get snuffed out because of brain death. He said, this I've discovered. But then he taught how ethics, samadhi, wisdom, ethics, samadhi, wisdom. Here's how. And then the rejoicing took place. His, I think his great satisfaction took place. And he saw other people get it too. That there was a reason. It became meaningful for him to get off his cushion beneath the Bodhi tree, walk off to Sadhanat and begin turning the wheel of Dharma because not everybody had so much dust in their eyes that they couldn't get it. You know? And so that is the spectacular thing. And I don't say it's unique, but it is unusual in the Buddhist teachings. He made these discoveries, but then for the next 45 years or so, all of his time was devoted to helping others make the discoveries for themselves. And it didn't end when he passed away. That wheel of Dharma keeps on rolling now for 100 generations, 25, 2600 years. And the discoveries keep on being replicated. I strongly suspect, I don't know this, but I strongly suspect every single generation. That's pretty impressive. People are running the trials, running the experiments. As they said during the time of the Buddha, ehi pasi, come and see. When they heard of these extraordinary claims made by the Buddha, it wasn't come and believe, come and worship, come and have faith in this one exalted being, but rather come and see for yourself. Replicate the experience if you can. Check out for yourself. Test it. And he kept on calling on his followers. Test it. Test it. Don't just believe. Don't turn my teachings into a religion overnight, please. Where you're just accepting it out of authority. Which means you don't get liberation. You just get a whole bundle of beliefs. So this theme of viewing your life as one of inexpressible preciousness, rarity, because it's richly imbued with leisure and opportunity. Really, we get the import of that if and only if. We see it within the context of our lives, our existence, not being a short story. If the materialists are right, then Buddha was delusional. We really have to just face up to that. There's no kind of nice middle ground. Well, gosh, he was just something else. He was either enlightened or he was delusional. There's really nothing in between. You know? And that's true not only for him and the many arhats that achieved such realization during his lifetime, and for these hundred generations ever since, they're either all delusional, all of these who have made such claims right to the very recent past. If you've ever seen the, the movie Yogis of Tibet, this is one amazing yogi, incredibly practiced, like 60 years of really intense meditation, something of that sort, Dupan Rinpoche, looking right into the camera lens and saying just point blank, I can remember all my past lives. That's just a few years ago. And if that happened in this generation, after the whole genocide of Tibet and, and so forth and so on, then the chances are it occurred in the preceding generation. 
and the one before that, and the one before that. That's, to my mind, pretty impressive. So there it is. There's a fundamental core discovery. And in terms of the nature of mind, nature of consciousness, I don't really know of any discovery that's more important than that one, for starters. And this is a common theme in Buddhism, that for, to, to couch this in modern terminology, for the pursuit of hedonic well-being in this lifetime and in future lifetimes, there's no truth more important than the truth reality of karma. If you want to somehow flourish within samsara, let alone liberation, you know, and all of that, but just from life to life, if you'd like to flourish, have a good life, a meaningful life, a happy life, then what you need to know more than anything else is the nature of karma, which is simply cause and effect. Engage in this type of behavior, this type of mindset, this type of speech, this type of physical behavior, sow good seeds, you'll have a good harvest. You need to know what the good seeds are, what the bad seeds are. And do that, and you can be a good farmer. And as you sow, so shall you reap. And you can just go from one wonderful lifetime to the next. But you have to know how nature works. You have to know what is wholesome, what is unwholesome. And if you do, you can really have not too bad a time in samsara. It could be a lot worse. You know? So it's the most important thing to recognize the continuity of consciousness from lifetime to lifetime. Adopt that as a working hypothesis until you know it for yourself, like this Dubanamache. And within the context of that, know with clarity, with intuition, with certitude, this is wholesome behavior, this is unwholesome, the long-term effects with this will be good. Long-term effects, you don't want to know about it. You know, bad. And so there it is, but it always boils down to this. That's the most important thing for the immediate future is that confidence, that certainty, that working hypothesis, continuity of consciousness from lifetime to lifetime, based upon an enormous database of how many thousands, probably more like tens of thousands of people over the last 2,500 years who have replicated that discovery through rigorous training that actually makes perfectly good sense. It is simply not indoctrination unless it's done terribly badly. You know? In terms of liberation, not simply flourishing within samsara, not simply the pursuit of hedonic well-being, but in terms of the pursuit of genuine happiness and taking that to its culmination, so the path of liberation, the path of awakening, then the one most important thing to know is the truth of emptiness hyphen dependent origination. The emptiness of inherent nature of all phenomena, which means turning that coin on the other side, the full reality, the import, the significance of all phenomena arising as dependent related events. <laughs> Knowing that truth with its dual facet, emptiness and dependent origination, that's, what, that's going to be the key. If you're looking for liberation, if you're looking for irreversible and complete liberation and perfect awakening, that's the most important truth. But within samsara, the most important one is karma. And karma is not karma unless you understand continuity from lifetime to lifetime. So this is enormously important. It's, um, and yet it remains in academia, in the modern mindset, simply a religious belief which is, frankly, it's a travesty. It's like saying the theory of gravity is a religious belief or Darwinian theory is a religious belief. But yeah, if you don't spend the time to look into it and see what, that it's not just a religious belief, it's actually based on really compelling evidence. Well, so is this true for the continuity of consciousness. So I, I listened, I, as I watched a number of times Dupanamache saying this and saying, I probably look human to you from outside. You know, but from inside, it's very, very different. You know? 
and seeing this, you know, this incredible master, and, and he's not alone. You know, there have been other comparable masters over the last 50 years or so, let alone before that. And seeing that it didn't make a ripple in terms of, wow, man, this is, this is a Darwin. This is an Einstein. This, is, this man's really something. What, when, except a tsunami from that statement. Like scientists flocking, did you hear what he said? My goodness, let's check this out. If this is true, this changes everything. If this one man knows that and his knowledge is valid, Man, we have to actually revamp our whole understanding of the mind and the repercussions are going to keep on flowing out into biology and physics and so forth. And no such tsunami took place. You might have noticed. He's just kind of this funky little old man who eventually died, made his statement. It was like dropping a pebble into the middle of the Pacific Ocean and nothing happened. And for good reason. I'm not ridiculing anybody. I think you, you can tell from the tone of my voice. There's no ridicule here at all. But... Um, it's kind of like, wow, that's, that's an anomaly. That's an interesting thing to say. But does not compute, does not compute. What do you, what do, you do with that? Because it remains, if it's true, it remains a private truth. He's simply saying that doesn't make it true for everybody else, unless, like me, you have a lot of background. And for very good reason, I take him very seriously, as I take seriously the statement of astronomers who say they've discovered exoplanets. Now I think it's 500 or more. I can't demonstrate that. I don't know that but I certainly believe it because I have confidence in their, their methods. And so I think this is where we're poised right now. This is now a little personal commentary that for 2,500 years, if we just look at the history of Buddhism, these discoveries have been made, I strongly suspect, every single generation and not by one or two, especially where Buddhism is really flourishing, China before the communists, Tibet before the communists, and so forth, Southeast Asia, for a long time, discoveries made but kind of private, kind of private, not publicly demonstrable, right? And I think we're poised right now, this generation is poised, it's a possibility for something really unprecedented, unprecedented to occur. And that is, I know a lot of scientists, and some of them are very open-minded, some are not, big deal, but the open-minded ones who are very sharp, very critical, but open and eager to learn something really new. And I know happily a number of scientists of that sort, they hear of hypothesis like this, and they say, well, that's interesting what he said, but we are scientists, and we'd like to see some evidence. And him simply saying that doesn't quite count as evidence. I mean, it's interesting. But we can't take home and we can't do anything with that. He simply said it. And so where we're poised right now is to do something unprecedented. I'm going to try to make this short so we get right back to meditation. But this is important, and I'll deal with it probably only once. Um, and I'm, what I'm not doing here, some, those of you who know me, I'm showing enormous restraint here, is I'm not criticizing the beliefs of scientific materialism. I've done that time and time again, rather exhaustively, in book after book, Mind in the Balance, Meditation of the Buddhist Skeptic. If you're interested, read it. I'm finished with that. But what could be done that hasn't been done? And I've given a name for it in my, in my book, Mind and the Balance, and that's the Alaya, uh, the Alaya Project. Okay? It's a project that hasn't happened, but it could. And it's based upon type of research, contemplative research, that's been done many, many times, where people go deeply into samadhi, they crack through the confines of their psyche. The psyche arose in this lifetime, independence upon this nervous system, and our acculturation, and so upbringing, and so forth and so on. Woman's psyche, man's psyche, Mexican, American, whatever it may be, a heavily configured mind, configured by many things, biochemistry, uh, the 
activities of the brain, culture, language, and all of that. And it's very easy to think, okay, let's call that the psyche. It's very easy to think, well, okay, that, that's it. The psyche is all we have. It's the psyche, that, what Buddhists call the coarse mind. That's it. And Buddhists would agree with the neuroscientists that say when you die and your brain is gradually dying and then it's kaput, uh, your psyche doesn't survive because your psyche arises independence upon the brain. The brain gets defected, it gets damaged, it suffers from Alzheimer's disease, senile dementia, what have you, and certain aspects of the coarse mind don't arise any longer. The brain doesn't support it. And then the brain dies, and that means the brain is not supporting the emergence, the ongoing moment-by-moment -moment emergence of coarse mind at all. And so from that perspective, you say, look, lights out. You've just lost your mind. And the question here, the, the one big question is, did it vanish entirely, leaving no trace, or did it rather go dormant into an underlying continuum of consciousness that preceded and is not dependent upon the brain? That is a hypothesis that virtually never even comes up in modern science, and they have no reason to. They have no reason to rest, raise the question since they have no, no way to <laughs> investigate whether that's true or false, at least thus far. But very briefly stated that the latter, of course, is the Buddhist hypothesis, which has been checked, verified, really tens of thousands of times, that at death, the conscious, your coarse mind, your psyche, the mind with which we're so familiar, doesn't simply go poof and vanish into nothing, leaving no trace of any kind of consciousness, but rather withdraws into a dormant state, a potential state in this underlying continuum of consciousness called subtle continuum of mental consciousness, called bhavanga, called the substrate consciousness, and it's not human. It's not male or female. It's not, it's not species specified. It's like a stem cell consciousness, and that's what carries on, but it carries on heavily configured by karma, by memories, and so forth. So what hasn't been done thus far, and it really could, it really could happen, but it's going to take a lot of effort, would be this Alaya project where you create the suitable environment for people to be able to spend two, five, ten years in continuous meditation, conducive environment, good spiritual friends with really expert guidance. So all of that. And let it hang out there. Let it be persistent and let it be affordable. You don't have to be rich to go, you know, go off to become a yogi. And you know, give it five or ten years. But if a continuously conducive environment with companions, with good instruction, and a quiet, suitable environment, and run the Alaya project where people focus on and they achieve shamatha. And not just one or two people, better a dozen, two dozen, three dozen people. That would be nice. Bigger number, better. And then run a controlled experiment. The, the, the first part, it's already been done. And Matthew Ricard wrote me just recently. It, it just filled my heart with joy. Because he goes to, back to Kham. You, have, you probably haven't heard this before. He goes to Kham every summer. He does wonderful humanitarian work there. Schools, clinics, great work. And he told me just in an email about a week ago that he was often come and he was visiting Zongsa, Zongsa Monastery. It's often come of Zongsa Kinsidamuche, one of his monasteries, his home monastery in Tibet. And he said there were 800 yogis there in full-time retreat. 800. And among them, 300 are in for life. Not for a three-month, three-year retreat, and then they're out and doing something else. They're in for life, a life term, you know. And among them, he told me, this is what really got to me. Among them, he said, Alan, you'll be very happy to learn. Some are really focusing on shamatha. That's very cool. It's also in Tibet. There are no scientists around. So what is likely to happen in that particular case for the time being, whatever discoveries they make will continue to be private, you know.
And the pe people around them, Tibetans, will rejoice in this, and they will accept it because it's part of their culture, and they have a great deal of confidence in these yogis. If they claim to have dis discovered something, the Tibetans there, being Buddhists, will say, well, like me, accepting discoveries out of MIT or Caltech or Stanford or Harvard. Wow, they made another discovery, and I rejoice. It's part of my culture. I have informed belief, informed faith and confidence. Well, so do the Tibetans back there and come. But what hasn't happened is have such people, you know, a dozen, two, three dozen people practicing shamatha, achieving shamatha, and then in a controlled experiment under very careful scientific scrutiny, put it to the test and ask them, can you recall your past lives? Well, but actually what you do, I'll run through that, trying to be brief here. It's hard to be very succinct. But don't just ask them, can you believe it? Because that's just one more report. It's private. You don't know whether it's true or false. But give them some tests. And then ask them a question about their past that they probably almost certainly cannot answer accurately out of their just ordinary waking consciousness. But plant the seed. Please, here's a question. Like, what did you have for lunch a year ago? You can't remember? Good. Now go into samadhi and see if you can dig that up. Point the laser of your attention when you're resting in the substrate consciousness. Point the laser of your attention now really sharp. It really is like a laser. And just like a laser pointer, target a year ago. Point your laser at it and tell, according to Buddhist view, Buddhist experience, Buddha Gosa describes this. It's just not a controlled experiment. Target something until it becomes clear. You're basically going right into the substrate consciousness, which, nominally speaking, is the repository of all your, all your past experiences and memories. Target it with your laser-like, samadhi-powered attention until what you had for lunch a year ago becomes clear, clearly to mind. And then you come out of samadhi and say, this is what I had a lunch, for lunch a year ago. And the scientist, the skeptic, but the open-minded skeptic, will ask questions for which, let's say, a, a male scientist already knows the answer. He's going to do some background research. And he's going to target questions, like in one of those game shows. You know, they ask a question for which they know the answer, and, you, and they presume you don't. The, the scientist will choose, having done some research on your life without your knowing about it, choose questions for which he has found the answer. And so when you come out and say, this is what I had, a, had for lunch a year ago, the scientist immediately knows already, by outside sources, whether your statement is true or false. It's a controlled experiment. And the scientists choose the question, so you can't rig it, you know, to try to prove Buddhism, right? Well, good, take it a year back, take it 10 years back, take it 20 years, 30, 40, 50 years back. Because the Buddhist view here, just go right back to Buddha Gosa, so you'll see this is the case, that when you're in that clear space of the substrate consciousness, there's no noise, there's no junk to get in the way of the laser point of your attention and your target of a whole bunch of previous experiences and all of that that clutter, clutter and fill the mind. Well, you're, you're beyond your mind. You're really beyond your mind, your psyche. You're in a deeper continuum, which is a repository of these experiences. And so then you take a person who, let's say, is 35 years old, 40 years old, let's say 40, and you, you gain some confidence as a scientist that they're giving veridical answers to your questions for which you knew the answers, and they're getting it right back to childhood. It's getting pretty darn impressive. So at which point you're saying, whoa, shamatha can really enable you to tap into your memory like nothing we've ever seen before. That's very impressive. It doesn't change anything. Not going to change our worldview, but that's quite impressive that you do shamatha and you can re re remember what you had, had for lunch 45 years ago. Right? It doesn't cause a revolution, but it's pretty interesting. But now if the person, the yogi who's achieved shamatha that you're conducting your research with is 40 years old 
and you get them right back to early childhood, and they're still giving accurate accounts from their memory. Then if they're 40 years old, say, now I give them a target 42 years old, 42 years ago. Now that's where the revolution begins. Because it's, it's a fair question. You can get negative results and you can get positive results. It's a fair question. It's not biased towards or against Buddhism and the claims of Buddhism. But you're 40 years old and I've just given you a target 42 years old. What did you have 42 years what, do you, what did you have for lunch 42 years ago this day? And of course, the scientist doesn't know that. He probably doesn't believe that you had anything for lunch 42 years ago. You weren't born yet or conceived. But then if you, you, you probe and you target 42 years ago, and you say, oh yes, I recall now. I was 86 years old. I lived in Madrid, and I was having some beans and rice. And this is where I lived, and this is my wife, and these are my children, and this is where I kept my golden watch that I received when I graduated from college. And you give a whole bunch of details. And then they check. Is there such a person living in Madrid? On that address? With that spouse? With that? And then you start giving details from your memory. And the scientist checks. Is there any way you can possibly, number one, is it true or not? If it's not, then interest, interest vanishes immediately. You just fantasize. People can fantasize without achieving shamatha. Right? But if it turns out to be true, there was such a person, and then you investigate further, and you have insider knowledge of details of that person's life that you really have no way of knowing unless you're actually tapping into that person's memory. Uh, welcome to the revolution. Because that becomes public. That's now public knowledge. With scientists who are not Buddhist, don't believe in any of this, but they're open-minded, they're critical, and it's up to them to create absolutely impeccable scientific protocol. If it's mushy, then don't even do it. If it's not convincing that you get you know, good data one way or another, then don't even do it. That could be public. That could enter into public knowledge. And if this is true, it's just enormously significant. And of course, I am utterly persuaded that it is true. And it's on this that hinges the teachings on the precious human life. It's hard to do this really succinctly, but time is passing. Let's go a little bit longer. Because now, but that's, that's the basis here. This is a testable hypothesis. I've read, I think, about pretty much all the hypotheses about nature of consciousness, what happens at death, and so forth, from the context of scientific materialism. And the interesting thing about, it, about all of them, and there are a lot of them, is none of them lend themselves to scientific uh, test. Not one. They're all articles of faith. They're just beliefs. But none of them can you test, which means there, there's not one scientific theory of the origins and nature of consciousness out there because the scientific theory is one that lends itself to empirical test. And none of them do. It's kind of a joke. And the notion that you go off to some eternal hell or heaven, that may be true, but that can't be tested either, not within the context of this life. Here's the one hypothesis that actually can be tested, has been tested, could be replicated, and could be public. So these are extraordinary times we're living in. This wouldn't even cost that much. But having taught long-term meditators now for six years, and about 40 of my students right now in long-term retreat, it keeps on coming down to the same thing. I'm speaking to everybody who listens by podcast as well. The one missing link here is the conducive environment. It's remarkable. It's not people with good enough ethics or motivation or discipline. That's not it. Really good. Westerners as well as Tibetans and so forth. It's the conducive environment. That's a killer. If you don't have it, you can have such good motivation, discipline, and all of that. But if the environment is not suitable, it's really tough. Really tough. And so that's just, and you don't find them. They don't drop out of a tree, you know? You don't, they just don't, don't just crop up. You have to create them. 
So that's why I'm working with people in Australia and Mongolia. They have the land, but not the, not the buildings yet. Mexico, they've already started, seven in full-time retreat. Uh, we're trying to start something in Santa Barbara, both a mind center and a contemplative observatory someplace nearby. In Scotland, I found a marvelous property that can serve as both. India, Bangalore, is His Holiness's baby. I'm serving him to create it there, both a mind center and a contemplative observatory, a whole network. It's really quite extraordinary. It could really happen. It doesn't even cost that much. But whether it will happen or not, it depends. And it depends, to a large extent, just on money coming in. You know, can, can you get the property? Can you build it? And can, can you make it financially feasible for people who are not independently wealthy to go off for five or 10 years and actually do the hard work? It's so cheap to support a yogi. You know, it's not nothing, but man, to, put, to, 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 um, to support a graduate student in neuroscience for a year, about $30,000 in America. To support a yogi for a year, much cheaper, much cheaper. So there we are. So a life of leisure and opportunity. This is an enormous topic. It really is a revolution. I'm not exaggerating at all. But to recognize that right now, for at least for these eight weeks, we all have what they're talking about right now. Whether we have it after these eight weeks, that's up to you. But we have the leisure. We don't have to spend every waking moment just trying to survive, make enough money to put food on the table, clothes on our children's back, and so forth. This is eight weeks of leisure. And when I was speaking with the seven yogis living in Vaida Bravo, and then one visiting uh, came there to see me and uh, Tony Karam, I told them something I think is literally true because they're there for at least a year in this very conducive environment, very good companions, and they have access to Tony. They, they're welcome to contact me at any time, and I respond very, very quickly. But I said, what you have right now, I know a number, a few very, very wealthy people. And I said, what you have right now, most billionaires cannot afford. I know some very wealthy people, but I don't know really of one who can afford to take a year off and just meditate. Too many demands on their time. Too many obligations. Too many responsibilities. They can't, literally cannot afford it. Whereas these seven people in Vida Bravo, taking off a whole year, you know, $20 a day, food, room, and board, they can afford it. People with multiple billions can't afford it. That's called leisure. They have nothing to do for a year or longer than just to practice Dharma. That's really hard to find. Now, leisure, a lot of rich people have leisure. A lot of people who are not so rich have leisure. But what do you do with it? Once you have some free time where there's really nothing you have to do, it's your vacation time or your work is finished for the day, you've got some leisure. How do you spend that leisure? What do you do with it? Do you fill it with junk food of the mind? Like just, you know, hanging out watching garbage on television or pissing away the time in idle conversation or crossword. You know, how do you spend your leisure? So having the leisure is a marvelous effulgence product of living in civilization. I think really the major reason for civilization is to have some leisure and not have to spend all our time hunting and gathering, hunting and gathering. But you know, we can spend only a portion of the day for survival, for our food, clothing, shelter, lodging, education, and medicine. Those are the really primary ones. And then we have some leisure at the end. But what do we do with it? And I think we all know how people spend their leisure. And often it's just killing time. Killing time. I see it all the time on the airplanes when I'm traveling. Killing time. We know. We know. You don't need a lecture from me. 
on the way people just piss away as if it's of no value at all, their leisure time. So leisure is fantastic. But how do you fill that time? What do you do with it once you get it? And that's where the issue of opportunity, leisure and opportunity. It's called, if you really want to break this down, you can get it on the internet or any good book on Lam Rim, the stages of the path to enlightenment. Eight aspects of eight aspects of leisure, ten aspects of opportunity, endowment. Uh, so it breaks it down into some detail. But it really boils down to this. Do you have the leisure that you don't have to spend every waking moment just surviving? Did you really have some free time? And once you have the free time, do you have the opportunity? Do you have the wherewithal? Do you have the, the context, the skills, the knowledge, the associations to be able to devote that leisure time to the cultivation of genuine happiness. Long ago, I asked one of my teachers, Gishin Taiki, what does Dharma mean? Dharma. I'd, I'd known the term for a couple of years. But he said, okay, just tell me what is Dharma? When you talk all the time about practicing Dharma, practicing Dharma, studying Dharma, Buddha Dharma, this, 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 practice, this tradition of Dharma, and so forth. And he just told me very succinctly, Dharma is a way of viewing reality, a way of practicing that gives rise to genuine happiness. Just that. Really simple, right to the point. The hammer hitting the nail on the head. Genuine happiness, a durable sense of well-being that's not static, that's not a dead end, that's not complacent, but just kind of like a, like a plant that just keeps on growing and growing and growing. A path of genuine happiness, a path of ever-deepening, sense of well-being, of flourishing, that is going towards complete and irreversible liberation, going for in the direction of the complete unveiling of the full capacities of consciousness in terms of compassion, of wisdom, and the sheer power of consciousness. So that's what Dharma is. And to have effective means, to have encountered authentic teachings, authentic teachers, authentic companions, to fill that leisure, to be able to bring about tremendously meaningful transformation, at the very least, to know with clarity, how shall I spend this life, invest this life, so that this is a good life, and I'm sowing seeds for another fortuitous lifetime, and another, and another, that as long as I'm samsara, I'm going from one good existence to another. What's the strategy? What kind of knowledge do I need? You know, that would be incredibly valuable. And beyond that, to know, okay, but beyond flourishing in samsara, having a good life, what is the path to liberation to completely and irreversibly purifying the mind, freeing the mind of mental afflictions so they never, ever, ever arise again? Which is an awfully big deal if it turns out to be the case, as the Buddha himself claimed, that consciousness, like space-time, consciousness like mass energy, can go through a wild array tremendous array of different permutations, formations, just like if you had a little clump of mass energy, you can transform it into so incredible variety of manifestations. Energy transforming the matter, matter into energy, this type of energy to another type of energy, this type of matter to another type of, of matter. But the one thing you can't do to any configuration of mass energy is to turn it into nothing. And that goes for space-time as well. Space-time awful, it warps, woofs, it changes, and so forth. But one thing you can't do to, with space-time is turn it into nothing at all, right? It transforms into other permutations of space-time. And the Buddhist claim here is that as in these fundamental ingredients of the physical world, space-time and matter-energy, 
that there is a conservation principle there. You cannot turn them into nothing. You just, you just can't destroy them. They just change. And the Buddhist principle here is exactly the same as true for consciousness. You can change it in all manner of ways, for the better or for the worse. The one thing you can't do to consciousness is make it turn into nothing. You may really want to. Everybody, I think, who commits suicide really desperately wants to turn consciousness into nothing because it feels like a better option to being conscious as they are right now. And they try their best, you know, but all they destroy is the psyche and their bodies. I think it must be a huge disappointment you know, when you really try to turn into nothing and you find you failed even at that. I think that'd be a ghastly disappointment to be in the bardo and say, oh, crap. I did it my best shot. It was even a large caliber bullet. I was sure I wouldn't miss. And I still missed. What a huge disappointment. So, the possibility in this lifetime to sow the seeds for really benevolent, meaningful lifetime and lifetime and one, one after another in the future, that's enormous. The possibility to be able to, stead, to tread firmly on a path that leads to liberation, that's extraordinary. To be able to follow the Buddhist teachings to achieve the same realization, the same awakening that he did, which is the, kind of the whole point, to achieve for ourselves that same awakening and to know that we can start now. Well, to realize that, to roll that around in one's mind and to really get it, if you get it, there's no return. There's no way to back out of that. If you really get it, it's a revolution. And they say, my goodness. They really meant it. Shantideva, this basis of leisure, this precious human life of leisure and opportunity is more valuable than a wish-fulfilling gem. Right? So whether or not we believe literally in wish-fulfilling gems, it's kind of beside the point. But a wish-fulfilling gem according to ancient lore and legend of Buddhism and in India and so forth. It's a gem that you find. If you go deep in the ocean, you find one of these incredible gems. And all you have to do is polish it, clean it up, and then direct your attention to it with whatever wish you like. Of any hedonic wish, power, wealth, fame, beauty, anything you want of any hedonic pleasure. And that gem will just deliver Johnny on the spot. You know? So that'd be very cool. You know, like a billion dollars? How many billions would you like? How, how much of this? How much you like? There it is. Poof. Right there. So, a magical jewel. And he said, well, if you had either your life right now, of this leisure and this opportunity, or you could have the alternative, door number two, a wish-fulfilling gem. Think very carefully which one you choose. Because one is immeasurably more valuable than the other. So to recognize that every time you wake up in the morning, throughout the course of the day, that right now, this life is inexpressibly precious beyond imagination. And then the other aspect of this, as time gradually rolls out, is the rarity of it. It is ever so easy to take, take for granted that which, about which we never even thought to be skeptical. I cite here a person that I knew, I, I still know, I haven't been in contact from him, with him for a while, but he's an outstanding, really world-class theoretical physicist. He's in here, his name is David Finkelstein, there is on page two. And I've heard him speak. We, we've, we've had a nice correspondence over the years. And he said, just a very brief quote here. He says, scientists must be skeptical, but in order to be skeptical of something, you first must notice it. And sometimes that's not so easy, especially when everyone around you assumes the same thing. Everybody else takes it for granted. 
Yeah? It's very hard to be skeptical of something you don't even notice in the first place. And so here we are with this human life of leisure and opportunity. How rare is it? How rare is it within this just human existence? Let's not go to the animals and all the other realms of existence in Buddhism, but just in human existence on this one planet, seven billion of us. And then how many among the seven billion are living bare subsistence, just scraping by, just wondering from day to day whether they can just get enough to eat? That's a big chunk. That's a big pie wedge right there, right? And then among those who have made it, how many have any vision whatsoever, even an inkling, that there might be such a thing as genuine happiness? That there might be such, such a thing as a path of liberation, of awakening? How many have any notion of happiness that's outside the domain of hedonic well-being and avoiding hedonic suffering, stimulus-driven suffering? What's the percentages there? How many have encountered authentic teachers that can actually effectively guide them on such a path to fortunate rebirth, to liberation, to awakening? How many have actually encountered authentic teachers? How many have companions to encourage them for mutual support along the path? How many have the leisure? How many have the opportunity? And the example Tibetans give is you take a pea, a handful, a bag of peas, and throw them against a wall. How many of the peas will stick? Right. They give many, many analogies of that. But how really tragically rare it is. Seven billion people. How many have that leisure, just for starters? And within the leisure, how many have the opportunity to fill that leisure with tremendously meaningful activity? It's meaningful in this lifetime, in future lifetimes, meaningful forever. So to not take for granted, that's what this is really about. Not take for granted, not treat it casually. They say a person who treats it casually is like a person who goes out on an ocean voyage, going back to the legend of, of these wish-fulfilling gems, goes out on an ocean voyage for years upon years and trawling and trawling, searching and searching for a wish-fulfilling gem. You know? And after 10, 15, 20 years, out in the deep seas, finally discovering a wish-fulfilling gem, bringing it up and recognizing it. Wow, that which I was always looking for, I found it. Maybe it even directs some attention to it and it gives them what they want. Wow, I found a wish-fulfilling gem. And having recognized it, throw it over their shoulder back into the sea and say, I hope I find another one. <laughs> you know? That's taking for granted. How confident can we be? On what grounds shall we be confident? That if we squander this opportunity, that will come up another one. Sure, next lifetime I'll have another one. Why not? And then we say, well, wait a minute. What makes me so special that I get two in a row if I piss away the first one? When so few people around in the planet, so few people have this as an opportunity. So to reflect upon that, there's a lot more, but I think that's enough for now. Time's actually finished anyway. It's going to be a little bit challenging for me to try to give it so succinctly that we still have time for discussion. But we didn't have any, many questions this morning, so maybe I can get a, an allowance for this afternoon. But to reflect deeply upon this, and you can go through the notes, and then, of course, there's so much good literature that really unpacks this theme in detail. But to make this sterile, and there's in any branch of Dharma, you can, if you are not very wise, make the practice something very sterile. The teachings, the practices, and so forth, the rituals. We can make anything sterile. And this can be sterile just by picking it up, reading about it, 
and then either rejecting it, which is okay, no big deal. Okay, you don't believe it. That's, that's your business. But if, even if one accepts it and says, okay, I believe I have a precious human life with eight types of leisure and ten types of endowment, that's really cool. What's for lunch? You know, and kind of just pick it up like you went, you're like a tourist going to a knick-knack, like a souvenir shop. And you say, oh, that's kind of pretty. That would look good on my map. How much is that? Oh, 80 bucks? Sure, that's pretty. That's pretty. I'll, I'll, I'll buy that. And you buy your little knick-knack. And you take it home and you put it on your shelf. I have one more acquisition. This is, I just picked this up. It's a Buddhist belief in precious human life. I kind of like that. It's kind of a nice belief. Uh, I'm going to put it on my mantle. It looks quite nice there. I believe that. The belief in this can have about as much effect on your life as a little figurine on a mantelpiece. Really, it can. It can be totally sterile. But this, is this why Tsongkhapa taught this? This is why the Buddha himself taught it, because he went through this himself. And all of these great masters from India and all schools of Tibetan Buddhism emphasizing this. It was not to just give us one more thing to believe in, you know, like one more inert little entity, a little bit of, how do you say, ideological baggage to carry along with us. These seeds were sown for each of these four thoughts to turn the mind. It's an invitation to a revolution. And each one does it. It's like a re revolution that just keeps on growing and growing. So here's the first one that opens the door a radical, radically different perspective on our existence. And what's it mean? What's it mean? What's its potential? How precious is it? And see, there really is no time to waste, no time to piss away, no time to squander. Because it is really our one, obviously, non-renewable resource. You can, you can do a bad investment. I've done those a number of times. Invest some money, lose it. You get more money, you get some, I'm still surviving, no big deal. More money, you get some possession, you lose it. Some of this, you lose it. And you get more. But the one clearly non-renewable resource is the minutes of our lives, the days of our lives. If you, if you lose that one, you just lose it because it was just wasted. You can't go back to the store and say, I'm, I'm sorry, but I just wasted the last five years of my life. I'd like to have a, a, you know, a supplement, please. Where do you go? gone, forever gone. So to drench the mind in this really changes everything. It really does. It's truly a revolution. Let alone where we're going from here. Where we're going from here is now at 6 o'clock is to, as the great existentialist philosophers have done, I think this brought this to light in the 20th century. Uh, a, life that, a life is authentic. We get this from oh, people like Camus, Sartre, and others. A life that is not facing the reality of death is an inauthentic life. If we're living as if we were immortal, we're living like fools. You know. No real path to liberation, but I think very deep insight into the significance of a clear encounter with and holding in mind the reality of our own death, of our, of our mortality, of impermanence of all phenomena. That's big. The Buddha said that's actually the most transformative insight among Insights within this, this world that we're very familiar with, without realization of emptiness or anything like that, just realizing the reality of impermanence, subtle impermanence, coarse impermanence, the impermanence of our own life. He said, of all the footprints of all the, the creatures that walk on the land, the biggest footprint is that of an elephant. And of all the insights we can gain about this phenomenal world, the one that has the biggest impact, like the elephant's footprint, is a very direct, powerful realization of the reality of impermanence. He said, boy, that's one. That's going to do a real number on you.
that's going to bring about a revolution. And that's the second one. Really big. That's a, it's really, it's a revolution. I'm, there's no hyperbole here at all. And then beyond that, to really fathom the first noble truth, the reality of suffering. Not just pain, not just the obvious ones. I don't feel good, my knee hurts. But looking at the multiple dimensions of suffering and getting it. And really getting it, that we don't get a free third noble truth just by dying. Noble, third noble truth, termination of suffering and the causes of suffering. Oh, if the materialists were right, it would be so much easier. That all you have to do is stop breathing. And you come to the cessation of suffering and the causes of suffering. Man, what a sweet dream. What a fantasy. If life were only so easy, I kind of part, of, part of me really would prefer that. Everything is much more... Well, then, no big deal. You know, this is a low-stakes poker game. It can be over really soon anyway. What's a big deal? And lights out, you know, whether you've been a saint or a sinner or whatever, lights out, lights out, no big deal. But if that's not true, man, everything's different. And the reality of suffering, it just doesn't go away. It's like one of those viral diseases you have forever. Suffering and the causes of suffering. Man, that changes everything that it doesn't go away with time, it doesn't wear out. That's really sobering. I mean, I think it's cosmically sobering. And that's the third one. And the fourth one, karma. Actions and consequences, cause and effect. Saying, wow, right now we're shaping our future. For this lifetime, for future lifetimes, we are the potter, here's the clay. We are the artist, here's our life. And we're shaping it right now with every deliberate act, every voluntary act. We are doing something with ramifications that flow into the indefinite future. So each one of these, each one's really a revolution. And that's how he starts. One could think that would be the whole text. If you get those four, maybe that should be enough, right? And one could say, well, that's a good start. But that's just the first line. All four revolutions packed into one line, first train in the preliminaries. Then we'll see where he goes from there, okay? This is quite a text. Quite something. Hola, so it is dinner time. So enjoy your dinner. I'll see you tomorrow morning.